brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. some reason youtube is being uh, a pain i could upload this later if i have to but uh yeah man plenty of news going on for uh those you know who check out the podcast we haven't done a live stream like this in a while but yeah ian scotto here i am the producer of soft rep radio for you know i always know that there's people who like check out the live stream or new that type of thing and jack murphy editor-in-chief of softrep.com yeah it's been a while yeah, it's been a while since we've done a live stream. I mean, I saw you two days ago. But we've been doing a lot of podcasts. Yes, we've been doing two podcasts a week, which we, you could, of course, subscribe to on Apple Podcasts for the people watching the live stream. But we figured we'd do this because um, we like to get questions from the audience. And, you know, if there's any of you checking this out, I know that we're doing this like noon east time, not exactly prime time. But if you happen to be catching this, we're always happy to answer any questions you may have. Um, last episode, 346, with Jim Morris, I thought was excellent. Yeah. Um, this is episode 347. I can't believe we're, <laughs> we're that many episodes Time in. Time flies, that's for sure. Yeah, it does. And, and so being that Jim Morris was a Green Beret Vietnam era, I think it's only appropriate to mention the death of uh, Michael Healy, Army Major General who led Green Berets in Vietnam, dies at 91. Uh, Michael D. Healy, an Army Major General and highly decorated counterinsurgency expert who retired as the top-ranking Green Beret and a legend in Special Forces, died April 14th at a hospital in Jacksonville, Florida. He was 91. By the way, this is from Harrison Smith at uh, Washington Post. Um, and if you read on one of the first Green Berets to achieve the rank of a general, and I feel like I say this just about every other episode at this point, like we really are losing so many of yep. these guys, and that's why we try to take advantage when we can of interviewing them and getting their story out there. Back in, uh, back in the day, this plays into the interview we did with Jim Morris before Special Forces became a branch. It was very hard for a SF officer to make rank and actually become a general. Um, now it's pretty commonplace. Well, I shouldn't say commonplace necessarily. It's still difficult to make general regardless, but, um, it's much more common than it was, you know, back in the, in the days, the Vietnam days, um, going to special forces was basically career suicide. Yeah. That was interesting hearing Jim Morris talk about that last episode where he said, you know, green berets were not this same decorated branch. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no career path. It was kind of like a career dead end. Yeah. From for as far as people who they're in their mind they're interested in making rank and climbing the ladder and all that good stuff. Yeah, I well, you know what's interesting? We talk about it on the show. Um, speaking of like career after the military, it does seem to be that stereotype that SF guys, um, Army Rangers, they they don't always move on transition to the civilian world the way SEALs do. And there's no like reason for that. That you see like these SEALs who become CEOs and I could I mean, I think there's a couple of things involved there. I think a lot of their guys who come out of the army side aren't necessarily showboating, quite frankly. <laughs> um, but I also think that it has something to do with the culture. Um, and I've said this before. Like in the SEALs, it's different because it's like it's encouraged. That sort of like individual achievement and entrepreneurial spirit. In the Army, I mean, in, in Ranger Battalion, it's like if you want to do anything that isn't Ranger Battalion, your chain of command basically treats you like a piece of shit and tells you you'll never amount to anything. Um, when I was in Special Forces and I was getting out, I was told that, uh, you know, NCO, we were NCOs and non-commissioned officers. And I was told, hey, you know what NCO really stands for, right? No chance on the outside. I've heard you say yeah. this before, yeah. 
So, I mean, if you're telling guys that, then of course they don't achieve as much when they, when they get out of the military because they've been told they won't amount to anything. Yeah. That all you can ever be in life is a, is a Green Beret or a Ranger or whatever. So for those watching the live stream, I'm going to be kind of checking um, comments and all that. So if you have any questions or anything like that, here's your chance to ask them. Uh, please like this. Please share it. We love getting the word out about the show, getting new listeners. Um, and that's why we periodically like to do these live streams. Uh, but biggest news today, Ronnie Jackson withdraws as a VA secretary nominee. Uh, this is from CNN. Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson has withdrawn as President Donald Trump's nominee to lead the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, his nomination was hampered by a flurry of allegations about Jackson's professional conduct, which, by the way, before the show, we were like, what are those allegations again? Really yeah, up. because I, ju- be I just saw party animal. This guy. I, I just saw the memo, the the actual um, not resignation, but his, his formal withdraw, uh, withdrawal from being a nominee for VA secretary. And it was kind of boilerplate, like, I deny all the accusations that were made against me and all this. And, yeah, that was when I was like, well, what allegations? Because I hadn't been following it. Me neither, yeah. And then we looked up the some of these articles that have been published about him in the last couple of days. And it's a lot of just getting drunk and belligerent. Well, it's like, bro, I want to party with this dude. <laughs> like, Donald probably it seems too. like It seems like he has a fun time, man. Yeah. Um, you know, go and have some drinks at the White House. Then we'll get in that up-armored limousine that the president has. We'll do donuts in the front lawn. <laughs> Tokyo drift that motherfucker, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Jackson said he was motivated to withdraw from consideration because the allegations against him have become a distraction for Trump and his agenda. And then it's funny, our writer Alex was talking about this. Then Trump went on Fox and Friends today and gave his opinion of that. Um, I have there been, like, I feel like there's been so many VA secretaries in the past. Yeah, five, six years. Grinding through them. Yeah, and none of them have been very popular from Shinseki to now. Like, I feel like uh, you could probably speak on this better than me, but it's more of like a embedded cultural problem at the VA than just who's the guy at the top. Yeah, like institutional problem that they just can't correct. Um, and it probably has to do with like years and years of, you know, culture and going to the lowest bidder and all these other problems. I've actually been to the VA here in Manhattan and I don't really have anything bad to say about them. Um, it's not as good healthcare. It's not as efficient as like private healthcare, but it works, you know, it pretty much seems to do its job. At least that's my experience with them. Um, but that's nonetheless, there are VA hospitals all around the country where, I mean, you can pull up story after story after story about (laughs) corruption and medical malpractice, um, all sorts of issues. Um, so yeah, VA has just really profound problems and, um, man, I wouldn't want to be the VA secretary. seems like, you know, like you're just condemned to commit ritualistic seppuku, like uh, cut your guts out, you know, like the samurais used to, um, you know, we just keep grinding through these VA secretaries. Yeah, and I, I know the major thing that's always said is we need to fix this backlog, and that, that that's not something that could be. So yeah, like when I, when I talk about like the the efficiency um, uh, versus the private sector, it's like, man, if you call VA and you try to make an appointment, you will spend two hours getting bounced around their automated call system, like sending you to this department, that department. When you finally get to the one you're supposed to go to to make your appointment. I'm sorry, The uh, we're no longer taking voicemail messages. Call again later. Like, yeah, fuck, really? I feel like uh, as a civilian, though, that's not that much different than the crap that you have to deal with in just the private. My, I mean, my experience in the private healthcare system is like you go online, you find a doctor you're looking for, you book the appointment online. It takes like five minutes. Yeah, I just know that there's always been a lot of forms to fill out to get reimbursed for stuff and all that type of crap. Yeah, when the bills start coming and then you have to negotiate with the doctor's office and the insurance company, that can be a pain in the ass. Yeah. Well, and, and also just, I, I feel like as a whole, they make you fill out a ton of paperwork. Yes, that can be done do. much more efficiently, but they don't give a shit about efficiency. I, which I think I've, I've heard people in the medical industry even say, I think they do that as a way to, to weed out some people who are like, oh, I don't want to fill all this out. And then they're not even going to submit a claim. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it seems like a lot of those forms they have you fill out are things that you could like, you know, do via email or something like that. Yeah. Except maybe like your social security number you don't want to put on the internet. I understand, but most of that stuff. 
And, and it, they have like online web portals, all the doctors use today anyway, where they send you your medical forms, you know, via quote unquote yeah, secure por- portals. So why can't you fill out those forms on their quote unquote secured portal? ZocDoc, which is great. I do love that. I don't know if I've used that or not. I, I, well, I guess just also being a civilian, I have a different experience. Yeah. So. Um, this ties into our interview with Dr. Leonard Wong. I thought this was an interesting one, and, and I saw that our friend Amber Smith, who we just had on, um, Army helicopter pilot, uh, put this out there on Twitter and was like, this is great news for the Army. Yeah. Uh, so this is from Megan Myers at Army Times. The Army just dumped a bunch of mandatory training to free up soldiers' time. The Army's top civilian is unloading a pile of training not required by the Defense Department in favor of allowing commanders to distribute guidance to their troops on their on their terms, according to a series of memos released in April. The guidance is part of a larger plan to cut the administrative burden on units, Army Secretary Mark Esper told Army Times in December, and roll out began this month. Um, so here are the things that they're cutting. They're cutting training programs in, in travel risk planning system, media awareness training, and combating trafficking in persons training. Uh, you know, you could speak probably more on if, if these were necessary in the first place. I mean, they're all kind of like check the block training. You know, you go through, you just click your way through some online training module and check the block. And that's what all that online training really is anyway. It's just so the commanders have their asses covered and be like, oh, he got the training you know so if you crash your car they can be like oh well you got the vehicle safety training or if a soldier kills himself i mean seriously i mean this is how cynical it is you know if a soldier commits suicide the chain of command can be like he got the suicide awareness training it's not our fault you know and as strange as this sounds there was a time and please go back and listen to the podcast we did with dr leonard wong we go really in depth on this subject there was a time when you know, if a soldier was looking depressed, if he was having problems in his unit, if he wasn't performing as expected, that his leadership would look at him and as a person and say, like, well, I can tell something's wrong with this kid. And the first sergeant would invite him in, you know, come on, kid, come into my office and sit him down. And he'd pour a glass of scotch and slide it across the desk and be like, what's got you so blue, kid? Like, that sounds surreal today in our, yeah. you know, our, our you know, hypersensitive, politically correct culture. But this is how the Army used to be. There used to be this human element to it. And you'd talk to your soldiers and you would know your soldiers. Nowadays, you know, even officers come in and their initial counseling is done via, you know, it's like a cut and paste form. They have no face-to-face interaction with their battalion commander. Nobody gives a shit anymore. And this is why I say the problem the military is having is not necessarily political correctness. A lot of people misidentify the problem. There is political correctness in the military. That's a problem. But the bigger problem is corporatization. And we've had this idea that we can institute corporate, quote unquote, efficiency um, into the military ranks. Um, and this is where you get all this online training module bullshit, all this other nonsense. And we've stacked the deck. We've given these guys so much mandatory training that our, our squad leaders don't have time to train, to coach, teach, and mentor these young infantrymen or other MOSs and bring them up the way they need to be brought up and, and learn the skills they need to have. Um, and because they're taking these stupid online training modules that do nothing for force readiness, they do nothing to make our military more agile, more lethal. It's just a drain on them. Um, you know, another example that was brought up to me recently is DTS, uh, I believe it's a defense travel system. So when you go on temporary duty, you come back and you go into this stupid DTS system and you enter all your information and you put your vouchers in and your receipts and blah, blah, blah. Back in the day, you used to just tell your chain of command or they would tell you you're going on TDY, okay. And there would be a uh, someone in the personnel office would cut your orders, give it to you, okay, you come back, you throw a bunch of receipts at them. Okay, you shouldn't throw receipts at your personnel people. Please don't do that. But you give them the receipts, they do up the paperwork, and you get reimbursed. It's all good, okay? Now that you have this DTS system that soldiers have to slog through, and it's one of those things that's designed, it's like corporate efficiency quote unquote. So we'll put this burden on the soldier and make him do his own travel paperwork. Has anyone ever looked at how much time is wasted making soldiers do this kind of bullshit? And I mean, it's not laziness. It's just saying we should have personnel, you know, S1 people in the military who do S1 stuff. 
um, you know, it, it, instead of passing the burden onto the soldier and calling it efficiency, because it isn't. It's just wasting more time. Um, so this is kind of where we're at with the military right now. And Dr. Wong did his sweeping research and, and white paper with um, some other um, students, graduate students or Army War College students. They really did a tremendous job on it. And you can go look at that paper. It's called, um, oh, shit, I think it's called Lying to Ourselves. Yeah, yeah that's right. And what he, what he found in that when he did that research was that not only do we give our soldiers more mandatory training than there are training days in the calendar year, so they're, they're at like 120% <laughs> overloaded yeah. here, but what he also found, a secondary finding, was that all our officers are reporting up to hire that they are 100% efficient, they're 100% complete on all of that mandatory training, which we know is literally impossible. So what we've done is we've bred and we've cultivated a culture in the military now where it became, it became okay to lie, to send up reports to hire and say, yes, we're 100% in the blue, good to go on all mandatory training when we absolutely are not. And what are the repercussions of that when we um, create a culture of lying in the military and it becomes okay to lie to your superiors and say that you're at 100%? What are the other effects of that? What does that mean? Um, and that's what his paper explores. So I hope people check that out. But this article in that they're starting to cut some of the mandatory training shows that Dr. Wong's research is starting to having a, a really profound impact on the force, a really positive impact. And uh, I'm really happy to see that. That's great. Yeah. And do you think his paper had any effect on this? Yeah, I think it had a huge effect. Um, I think it went all the way up to the top. I think a lot of middle management, uh, a lot of officers wanted to ignore it. And uh, just roll their eyes at it. But I do think that eventually his research was heard and understood and that there were people um, like the secretary of the army. Um, uh, what's his name? Ellsberg, I believe. Um, and in uh, the secretary of defense, um, Jim Mattis. I think they understand this now. Oh, no, it's right here. Uh, secretary. Uh, you got it. Secretary uh, Mark Esper. OK. Um, so. Thank you, Mr. Esper, Secretary Esper, and uh, and Jim Mattis uh, have put this on their plate, and they understand that this is an issue, and they're trying to resolve it. Yeah, which is good to hear. Maybe we should get him back on at some point and and hear about his reaction to them doing this, Doctor Wong. If they're if they're yeah. doing it in the most efficient way. So you know, the change change happens slowly in a big bureaucracy like the Department of Defense. Um, It'll be. I think you'll start to see uh, the soldier will start to feel an impact over the next, you know, six to twelve months. Um, it'll be interesting to gauge that and see, like, have you has your time been freed up? Do you have time to train your soldiers now? Yeah. The first great question we have here from Brad Manning, and I guess not to be confused with the Bradley Manning, like the Bradley <laughs> Manning now Chelsea Manning, unless Chelsea Manning happens to be watching us. Uh, where can I get the shirt Jack is wearing? Softrep.com. You know what's the funny thing? I have a soft rep on time on target shirt. I do not have the soft rep you don't radio have the shirt. Soft rep radio no, I, shirt. I probably should. I you mean, probably I'm should. One of the guys on the show. Since uh, you produce every single episode. Yeah. So go to softrep.com. <laughs> uh, I shameless plug since you mentioned it. It's right on there. Uh, and they're great shirts. Yeah. Like, I love are. the way all the soft rep shirts fit. So that is the answer, Brad. Um, and like I said, I assume you're not the Brad Bradley Manning. Um, all right. This is a great article that Kurt Troder, our writer, did on SOPREP. Mm -hmm. Iraq begins airstrikes in Syria against ISIS. And Kurt is great in this stuff because of the fact that he's been a volunteer at the Peshmerga. And spent so much time over there. Yeah, so he, he knows his stuff. Um, and you should check this out. It's right there. Like I said, the title, if you want to look it up, is Iraq begins airstrikes in Syria against ISIS. Uh, this past week, the Iraq Air Force began carrying out coordinated airstrikes on Islamic State positions in Syria alongside the Syrian government. A tweet from the Iraqi Air Force read, based on the orders from Abadi, the commander-in-chief, our air forces, by using F-16s, bombarded ISIS terrorist positions in Syria on the border with Iraq on Thursday. Haider al-Abadi, Iraq's prime minister, has hinted that Iraqi military forces may soon be aiding in combating terrorism in Syria earlier this month. According to Brigadier General Yahya Rasul of the Iraqi Air Force, the airstrike missions were based out of Iraq and done cross-border with the Syrian government's permission. The United States-led anti-Islamic state coalition uh, provided target intelligence for the strikes, 
uh, for the operational forces. However, the mission was planned and executed by the Iraqi Joint Operations Command. The Iraqi Air Force provided a video later uh, that featured an F-16 fighter jet adorned with Iraqi flag on the tail, staging for a takeoff on a military flight line. Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi has tweeted our heroic air force carried out on Thursday in Syria near Iraq uh, border, Iraqi border, deadly airstrikes against Daesh's terrorist gangs. Iraq has yet to disclose specific target locations on their exact content, uh, contents. Abadi had ordered airstrikes to be carried out in Syria last year in February against ISIS positions as well. Despite a body declaring victory over the Islamic <coughs> State last December, as Mosul was liberated by Iraqi military forces, the attacks from sleeper cells and pockets of resistance seem to have increased. The Al-Anbar province in Iraq and Deir ez-Zor, am I saying that correct? Dar-Azor. Dar-Azor uh, region have experienced militant-based attacks over the past week, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, Kirkuk has been a hotbed for ISIS-based insurgent activity as well, given its current state of dispute by local nationals. Welcome so, to the party, pal. Yeah. Well, yeah, you were, you've been talking about this on, on episodes. I mean, this is handing the power to the Iraqi indigenous population. And, well, yeah, in a sense. I don't know if we greenlit them or not. Um, of course, the... Um, perspective from you know that that so-called arab street is always that america greenlit this you know every action turkey takes for example they're like oh well america okayed this whether we did or not um and that's just part of the difficulty in dealing with that region but i uh, it's interesting you also got the shia militias uh that went from iraq and crossed over into syria and mucking around it's what a shit show Good All right, Lord. I see we're getting a few questions here. So I'll get to this one last article, and then um, we'll get to your question. So if you have anything that you want to ask, keep it coming uh, to the live stream right now and like it, share it. And, um, yeah, any, any questions at all? I mean, we rarely get to do these, so it doesn't have to be on topic. Um, you know, we, we rarely get to do these Q&As, so we're happy to answer anything you have for the podcast or for Jack um, or for me. No, this is from South China Morning Post, and it's interesting because no one's really reporting on it. You found this. Uh, you know, I don't even know much about South China Morning Post as a source. Neither do I, actually. Yeah, so here's what the article is. North Korea's nuclear test site has collapsed, and that may be why Kim Jong-un suspended tests. The mountains collapse after a fifth blast last fall has led to the creation of a massive chimney that could leak radioactive fallout into the air, researchers have found. North Korea's mountain nuclear test site has collapsed, putting China and other nearby nations at unprecedented risk of radioactive exposure. Two separate groups of Chinese scientists studying the issue have confirmed, which is pretty serious. Um, the collapse after five nuclear blasts may be why North Korean leader Kim Jong-un declared on Friday that he would freeze the hermit state's nuclear and missile tests and shut down the site, one researcher said. The last five of Pyongyang's six nuclear tests have all been carried out under Mount Mantap at the Punjiri. Would you say that would be the Big Bang in Pyongyang? <laughs> I, you mentioned it. <laughs> uh, at the Punjiri nuclear test site in North Korea's northwest, our group of researchers found that the most recent blast tore open a hole in the mountain, which then collapsed upon itself. A second group concluded that the breakdown created a chimney that could allow radioactive fallout from the blast zone below to rise into the air. So this is crazy to hear just from a health perspective of yeah. people in China. Also, you know, Kim Jong-un covering his ass. So is it is it true or is it a deception? And this is part of, um, you know, sort of international gamesmanship or brinksmanship. Um, you know, I think they'll be able to confirm it via satellite and via... Um, not not Geiger counters, but you know they have sensors that can test for you know nucleotides and all that good stuff, and see if radiation is really leaking out of there. So I mean, I think that technically it'll be able to be confirmed um, for sure, one way or the other, eventually. Um, but this would be interesting because does it mean that their nuclear facility is defunct now because they destroyed it accidentally? Uh, and that's why they're like, okay, yeah, we'll suspend nuclear testing because they can't test anymore. So it's like it's already shut off, but now you're going to make it seem as if you're making a concession. Um, Which, of course, Trump will take credit for. Sure, sure. And we can get into all of that, but, I mean, any administration would take credit for it. Um, 
the uh, so the thing about nuclear underground nuclear testing, I mean, it's to, designed to control the radiation, but there's also a um, theory that you can decouple a nuclear explosion um, from uh, what would be like seismographs. So if you have it in a big enough underground cavity. Um, then you can test nuclear weapons inside that cavity, and it won't show up on um, on seismic sensors around the world as a nuclear blast. Uh, and I, I had a professor, um, Professor Richards, who was a nuclear seismologist, and um, I, I kind of asked him, I was like, you know, what do you make of that theory? And you know how academics, they won't say, as like someone like I would, like, that's total bullshit, man. He's a, a very astute person. Yeah. Um, and, and, but... Though basically in a very academic way, he said, I, I don't necessarily buy that argument, you know. And uh, so I, it's probably not true that you can decouple a nuclear explosion like that. But nonetheless, they were testing underground. Um, <laughs> I mean, how many, how, how many nuclear detonations can you do in the underground cavity before you collapse it? I mean, it seems like it's something that's going to happen sooner or later, right? Jeez. It's just, it really is scary to think what we're doing, you know, and, and that that's also goes into, I know it's unrelated, but we always talk about um, lowering our carbon footprint here in America and, you know, that we need to have these agreements with the rest of the world. Like, I don't think China and China doesn't give a especially shit, especially these regimes like North Korea really care and are willing to yeah. go on board with doing things that are you know, less harmful to the environment when you hear it, about these nuclear tests. It's hilarious the way we negotiate with some of these countries and, and try to couple with them or deal with them um, and, and just sort of the, like, hand-wringing that we do in the West. And, like, especially, like, the, the American left, I feel like looking at them sometimes, and I'm like, all the things that you value the most, the rest of the world values the least. Yeah, like, you don't think the Chinese are willing to buy carbon footprints if they... The Chinese don't yeah. care about environmentalism. They don't care about racism. They care not a, a damn about LGBT rights. All these things are just, like, superfluous to them. They do not give a shit. From their point of, point of view, they want to harmonize the entire region around the Han Chinese, which the, the elite class of that country see them as the master race. There's... Uh, it's just hilarious. We're we're not even like thinking of each other on equal terms, um, and China represents itself as this sort of like positive force for good in the world, and a lot of Americans buy that for some reason. Which actually brings us into the um, I believe it's a Washington Post story about Chinese student spies. Yes, yeah, you wanted to mention. Yeah, that. and I, I had written about that years ago, <laughs> and people were like, "You're a racist, Jack Murphy. How can you say that? How can you say that these Chinese students are ra- are, are spies? That's just xenophobic and." It's like, no, no, this is really how it works. Like, if you're from the mainland, you know, it's quid pro quo. I mean, you're coming back home, and it's just understood that you work for the homeland. That's how it is. Um, and and it, all that started for me, I didn't know that much about how, how these things work and how Chinese espionage functions. Um, but I was at a class in college, and uh, I was in a, so it was a little study group. We were studying for a final exam, and I was with uh, three Chinese students. And really nice people. I liked them. Um, but we'd get into talking about like politics and stuff like that because it was like, it was a course in international politics, I think. And I asked them about Fulan Gong, which is very controversial in China. And I asked them, you know, just your opinion, you know, no judgment here. You know, do you think they're a persecuted group or do you think they're really up to no good? And brother, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Mm-hmm. Like you could hear the second hand on the clock, like click, click, click. <laughs> And I realized after the fact is the three Chinese students in that class, they're all afraid to talk because they're all afraid that the other people in the room are going to inform on them back to their home country. Wow. Scary shit. And so this story got ignored for a long time, but I I, I see this as a positive development is the American press over the last couple of years has finally started talking about how China poses a threat to America, um, poses a threat to democracy. China is never going to democratize. That's just a, a pipe dream. And um, the Chinese espionage happening right here in America, finally it's become an acceptable topic for conversation in the mainstream media. So I am glad to see that the Washington Post is picking up on that. And I will issue a correction here. Carlos Figueroa watching says it was the Washington Times. It was the Washington Times. Thank you. So according to Carlos. Um, all right, so I'll get to some questions here. I feel like we've covered a lot of news going on this week in the community. Um, let's see here. Gene Farnsworth, Gene. who we love. What does Jack think winning means in the Middle East? What does a win look like? 
That's a hard question. So I, I guess he means from an American perspective, an American foreign policy perspective, I think winning would mean stable governments um, that are at least um, political in nature, rational in nature, um, are willing to engage politically in the rest of the world rather than um, act as um, terror, terror states like we saw in Afghanistan. Gaddafi would engage in acts of terrorism, um, things like this. Um, the, the winning might be in the Middle East. It might be some form of political Islam. I mean, a lot of people don't want to hear that, but it might be a form of, you know, um, you know, politics informed by Islam, not necessarily Sharia, not crazy stuff like you see in Saudi Arabia, um, but who are, who are our allies, right? But a more pragmatic form of political Islam that is willing to engage politically and diplomatically with their neighbors in the region, with Israel, with the United States and the West, and we'll have some sort of, you know, give and take and normal diplomatic relations. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, from an American foreign policy perspective, that's the best we can hope for is stable, rational states that lean more or less towards democracy might not, it's not going to be American style democracy, but some indigenous type of democracy in the region. Um, whoever can move the middle East in that direction will be the hero of our age. Uh, you know, actually accomplishing that is a whole other story. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. Um, and we've talked about in previous podcasts, like staying there for generations. How do you make an impact? Nobody, nobody has any answers. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, I don't have all the answers either. You know, let's just be real. All right. Scott Fisher, Ian, I need to send you a list of metal bands to check out. Yeah, feel free. Softrep.radio at softrep.com. Jack, looking forward to your memoir. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, we're going into the editing process now. Uh, make some revisions. Add some things, maybe. I don't. I don't know. We'll, we'll go. We're going to start getting into that process and going through that. Nice. All right. Uh, Brad Manning says he is not that Brad Manning, which is funny. <laughs> uh, oh, all right. Mark Camilleri, am I going to be okay in uh, in Turkey on the holidays this year from the United Kingdom? Uh, be careful. Don't don't go to like big uh, public gatherings. You know, I, I mean, go have a good time. You know, I wouldn't tell people not to go to Turkey. Um, you know, even though I have, I'm probably not welcome there, um, because of some of the stuff I've wife, done. Right? Well, well, my, both my wife and I have done a lot of reporting on the Kurds and we've hung out with different Kurdish groups that Turkey is not, uh, does not hold in high regard. <laughs> um, but you know, for the, you know, the rest of the, the public, I mean, go to Turkey while you can before that country backslides another 25 years. Um, I would just avoid like large public gatherings. Like I said, don't, don't go to protests, things like that because of bombings, but you should be okay. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah. Don't live in fear. That's, you know, if, if that's something that you really want to do, uh, same Brad Manning, what was your favorite weapon while in service? Ooh, my favorite weapon. Let me think here. I mean, I, I was very fond of my, uh, SR 25 sniper rifle. Um, three, there are 300. Hey, you can't have one of those in New York. Well, you can't have any of these in New York. I mean, the 300 Win Mag, very nice gun. Um, I, I mean, the, the Ma Deuce is a classic. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of fun to shoot. It's cool. But I, I was, you know, uh, 18 Bravo, so I got to shoot all the guns. It was fun. You still, you don't really shoot any of those anymore, though, right? No, no because I live in the city. I, I don't have that many opportunities. But you know there's people who travel to PA. Uh, yeah, I could travel every weekend if I was that motivated to go and, and shoot. Yeah. Um, if I lived in a different place, I probably would take up some sort of, like, um, I don't know, competitive marksmanship, you know, or something like that. I know, cool. I know a lot of guys who are into that. It's a cool hobby. Cool I was, sport. I was listening to Coleon Noir, the guy who works with the NRA on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he does a lot of that. Oh, yeah, like yeah. three-gun, all that? Yeah, because he was saying that his dream as a kid was to be a professional basketball player. And he was like, so I'm very into, um, you know, I guess including like that athleticism with mm -hmm. shooting. And he got into it later on in life. Really good interview with that guy. I'd, I'd actually love to get him on soft rep. I was even saying to Scott Whitner from the loadout room, like, it'd be cool to have him on and do, like, a gear talk type of thing. That'd be cool. He's a really cool guy and smart guy. I didn't know, he was, a, a, I didn't know he was a lawyer. Oh, no, I didn't know that yeah. either. 
there's a lot of stuff out there now um, for people who are interested in competitive marksmanship, like all these IPSC competitions. And it, it seems like that that sport has gotten bigger and bigger um, over, I guess, over the last decade or so. There's a lot of opportunities out there for people who are interested in taking that up. Awesome. All right. Um, let's see. I don't know who this person is, but Kari Zandanon says, hi, my brother from another mother, Jack. Uh, Hello. Chris Thornton. Jack, what do you think about the escalating tensions between Turkey and Greece? (laughs) I mean, yeah, the Aegean Sea. um, Well, the tensions have always been there, right? Over Cyprus, over these islands in the Aegean. Um, I don't know if I'm prepared to give like a total like geopolitical breakdown of what's happening, but I I think it's all emblematic of what we've talked about before, how Erdogan has these neo-Ottoman ambitions and they see the entire surrounding area as part of the new Ottoman empire. Um, So it's like, man, are they going to go and, you know, wage war against Belgrade again? You know, are they going to try to take the city, (laughs) take Eastern Europe? How's that going to go down? You know, where does this end for Erdogan? Because it's always a question of what do you do for an encore, right? If this is your form of legitimacy, this sort of um, insane blending of Islamism and Turkish nationalism, where is it going to go? Um, you know, the Greek government, I was told, was actually uh, the Greek military was on high alert because they were expecting an impending attack from Turkey. I mean, that's insane that these two, you know, two countries in, in NATO that are ostensibly both part of Europe. I don't want to start. Uh, I know there's a lot of. A lot of tension there. I don't want to start a fist fight about which countries belong in the EU and which don't. I know you have a bad economy, Greece. It's not your fault, okay? Well, we're moving on. We're moving on. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, those tensions are going to keep building. And, I mean, I think it would be better for, you know, some of these supranational structures like NATO, like the European Union, um, with America playing a, a sort of vanguard role to try to step in and try to dial that back now if possible, um, because it's going to get worse and worse. There's no doubt about that. Hmm. And then how long before there's a real conflagration in the Aegean and you have Turkish troops, you know, having firefights with Greek troops. Yeah. Um, all right. Scott Fisher, what's Delgado up to? I don't know. You'd have to ask him. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Thank you for the soft rep t-shirts. Oh, LLRR guys, thank you for the soft rep t-shirts. Oh, the uh, White Reaction Regiment That's uh, right, in yeah. the Philippines. Yeah, I we remember, gave, yeah. We gave them a big box of uh, t-shirts. I handed off to um, one of their friends in uh, Las Vegas at the SHOT Show. And they gave me a plaque, which was very nice. It was really cool. Yeah. Um, uh, with some, some memorabilia from the Battle of Marawi. Um, but yeah, the, the Filipino special operations units are, uh, they're really good guys. Awesome. Uh, all right. Jared Lee Uzi, uh, question for Jack is someone who has served in both units, uh, are SF or Rangers more likely to deploy in small teams? Uh, special forces is much more likely to deploy in small team because it's designed to function as an ODA. A 12 man team is the maneuver element of special forces. Um, so they're designed to go and work in austere environments in a decentralized environment. Um, Rangers are designed to work as a, a platoon or higher. Um, you know, you could deploy a platoon, you could deploy a company, you could deploy a battalion. Um, there have been circumstances where, like in Panama, where the entire regiment deployed and jumped in. Um, so, yeah, two different jobs, different organizational structures. I don't think Rangers would ever be deployed as less than a platoon, at least not to a, not to combat. I can't see that happening. All right. Um, and our friend Shannon Miller, who's been on before, says sign up for the Department of State travel warnings for Turkey. Uh, we'll tell you of the places to avoid inside Turkey. Don't travel to the east in Turkey. So that's that's definitely some good advice. Um, oh, uh I have no idea what this question is. Michael S. Pezel, what you see more places to go back with God, all things are B. I have been trying. I don't know what that even means. Go with God, brother. (laughs) Go with God. Yeah. Well, if you have anything else, uh, shoot them over. You know, this is kind of a shorter episode because we went over, we went two hours with Jim Morris. And this is Facebook Um, Live, so I feel like I should have had multiple rants prepared (laughs) to like just like a little notebook, like flipping them out. Like, okay, here's my rant on this subject. Yeah, but we we just kind of wanted to do a news roundup type of thing. 
Um, as I should mention, you guys, there's you guys, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our premium crates have been an EDC med kit put together by Benghazi survivor and Army Ranger Chris Tonto Peranto and a ballistic shield insert for your backpack made by Cry Precision. Crate Club is really stepping up its game right now as 2018 progresses by putting out custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else. Scott Whitner has been a big part of that. Um, We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Yeah, I mean, I get the Crate Club sent to me, and um, it's like grown in leaps and bounds. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's some really cool stuff in there now. Yeah, I, I've always loved I mean, the premium crate especially. Yeah. There's yeah. always really awesome stuff in there that's just practical and that you'll be able to use. Um, for you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We just launched Kuna. Um, some of you who have signed up for Kuna may have gotten your first package just now, which is great. Um, we have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids, and they custom build it for your dog. So it's Kuna Dog, uh, Kuna dot dog, C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And if you're enjoying that uh, first, if you're enjoying that first box, let us know. Sorry, I'm just looking through the comments as well on here. There's just so much stuff coming in. Although we don't have YouTube up, I'll have to re-upload to YouTube. Um, But we are on Twitch and on Facebook. Uh, And as a reminder for those listening and watching the live stream, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today, which includes Training Cell. And we also have the Spec Ops channel app developed by Chris in the Philippines, speaking of the Philippines. Um, for iOS, Android will be available in June, and that's specopschannel.com. And also on the Spec Ops channel, the new documentary series, The Divide. Yeah, uh, that, the, they just did the first episode, right? Is the first episode on there already? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's me hosting it, and we went into the March for Our Lives protest here in New York City. And, um, you know, we interviewed all sorts of people. We interviewed, you know, high school students, teachers, um, run-of-the-mill protesters, uh, you know, people who live in, in, in the city who came out to protest guns. We interviewed uh, pro-NRA people. We interviewed, you know, the, the MAGA crew, the MAGA people, the <laughs> Make America Great Again hats on. Including Kanye, who's rocking his lately. <laughs> we did not the big news. We did not interview Kanye, but we, we made an effort to try to cover as many different sides of the issue as we could. And um, the concept of the documentary is just that, that, Instead of you know hearing it from a talking head like someone like me, um, are you really a talking head though? Well, I could become a talking <laughs> head if I just like lecture you. If I if I you know get my cell phone out and I sit in the front seat of my car and I just go on rants every day, I would okay. become a talking head. Um, but you hear from the people who are there, and I think if you watch that documentary, it'll give you a good idea of what type of people showed up at that protest, what their thoughts are, and what they weren't. Yeah, so check that out, The Divide, on the Spec Ops channel. It's specopschannel.com. Uh, only $5 a month right now. I don't know how long we're running that, so if you want to join or become a team member, and you'll get it um, included. Wrapping things up here, I see a couple more questions coming in, so I'll shoot. I'll get to those, and then we'll uh, call it a show. Chris Thornton, um, I've posted several articles on Samrock, Sam and Jack has written on the issue. So, Jack, do you have any new info on all the seventh group guys getting in serious legal problems? Um, I've had some conversations. I'll have to maybe leave it at that. But, no, I don't have any other additional information. I know the unit is trying to grapple with it and deal with some of these things. Um, you know, they got their work cut out for them, unfortunately. Um, but we'll see how it goes. Um, all right. Brad Manning, once again, Jack Murphy, when do you expect to go back out and do more news-type stuff overseas? And what are your thoughts on Africa? Hmm. I don't have any plans right now. Um, I have to see what's interesting, what's underreported. Um, I have, actually, I want to send some of my writers. They, they have some ideas about some different hot spots around the world. I'd like to shoot them out to um, sometime this year. 
I, I don't have any plans right at this moment. I think the next thing for me is um, actually going on my honeymoon. Nice. This Congrats. Summer. So, yeah, I'm taking a little bit of vacation time. going to be in, uh, in Europe, and then my wife and I are taking our honeymoon. But, you know, my, my wife is a journalist. I, I am what I am. We're, we're going to go to some places that are a little bit off the beaten path as far as honeymoons. <laughs> we're not going to uh, Tahiti or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so maybe they'll come back. Who knows? Maybe I'll come back with a story from there. Um, we'll have to figure out who's going to be here while you're not here. Uh, what, is yeah. it going to be like a month without you? Yeah, well, I can still call in. We can do it like that. Yeah. I'm calling on Skype. same, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll be probably like a month or so, maybe five weeks that I'll, yeah. I'll be out. Um, so that, yeah, that's that. But as far as like, yeah, doing another reporting trip, it would be interesting. It would be interesting to go back to Syria, to northern Syria again, um, because as the war matures, it's interesting to see how the Kurds evolve in that region and how they're trying to create their own system of governance. And will that system of governance survive? So it's sort of like the post-war environment and what that looks like. Um, but there's a lot of interesting areas in the world, a lot of interesting things going on. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Central and South America nobody's reporting on. It's, yeah. It's crazy. No one's even reporting on what we spoke about earlier with North Korea and what's going on with their nuclear tests. So. There's a lot of stuff getting brushed under the carpet with North Korea. But yeah. That's another subject. Hey, this is a guy that I've heard you mention before on the show. Carrie uh, Zand- Zandanan says, Hi, Jack. This is McLovin. I've heard you reference him before. Oh, McLovin. Yeah. Uh, McLovin was one of... He worked with me on, uh, on our base at um at fob sykes in tel afar iraq and uh mclovin and his brother they both worked for us for my oda and um they have both immigrated to america subsequently Very and they're cool. here with their families now it's great yeah i've heard you bring him up so he says Do you- we we interviewed his brother you remember um, I know we re- we interviewed a Yazidi guy, so that that's, was him. That's okay. McLovin's brother. I remember. I remember everybody we interview. I really do. Um, so that okay, that makes sense. Um, and he does ask, do you guys have the Softrep T-shirt available online? Yes, we do. Softrep.com. There's a store tab right on there, and there's a whole variety. We have a throat punch of the week shirt. I've we have a whole bunch of shirts. We're also working on like some more like I think like different kinds of like funny shirts and stuff like that, weren't we? weren't we talking about that with? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the stuff I've seen on there, I've seen for a while, but it's all good. They're all great yeah. shirts. So, yeah, go to softrep.com, buy a shirt, help us out. Um, I, all right, I guess we'll get to this one last one. Well, Chu says, um, nice analysis on various issues. Good job. Thank you. Um, and I guess we'll wrap it with this question. Jimmy Alford, what would our, the U.S., next step be in Syria? Wow. Yeah, okay, so next step in Syria would be consolidation and, and withdrawal. I mean, probably unless we plan on staying there for a long time and we want to, um, you know, the same way we might put troops in Poland, right, so that it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, like a force, um, like we keep troops in Estonia or Lithuania, and what that does is it projects to the Russians, it says, look, if you invade this country, you're going to be at war with American soldiers, and so it, it's um it's a, a for, just stationing troops there a small uh, number of soldiers not enough to be provocative like it's clear this isn't an invasion force like we're going to try to invade Russia with this t- these two hundred troops it's just a, a small force to tell them look if you invade this country you're you're at war with America now the question is would we be interested in doing that in Syria and in, in what the Kurds call Rojava, this area of northern Syria, are we going to keep a small number of American troops, 200 special forces and support guys there, just to tell Turkey and maybe the Syrian regime, if you invade this area, you're at war with America too. But I, I don't know if that's our, our long-term agenda. I'm not sure if we even have a long-term agenda in Syria. I don't, I'm not convinced we ever have had one. Yeah. Um, so that might be one option. Maybe that's what we're looking at. Um, or the option could be, look, we want to um, get the Kurds to the table with the Assad regime and reach some, and help reach some sort of negotiated settlement. I think that's, this is how the Kurds perceive it. And, my, my, and it's how the regime perceives it, too, because I've, I've, um, 
I've been with both sides. So I've heard both comments from both sides. And I think both the Kurds and the government, the Syrian government, both understand that at a certain point, they're going to have to reach a negotiated settlement. And what the Kurds want is a semi-autonomous area. Um, just like we have states' rights in America, they want to have some states' rights where the Kurds have rights and things like this, and they have some participation in the government. Um, but they understand that what they call Rojava and those cantons will be folded under a Syrian federal system, right? Mm-hmm. So that might be the next step, and maybe America can help push that a little bit further along. But again, I mean, it's all so fluid. Who knows what the hell? <laughs> we never seem like we know what the hell we're doing over nope. there. Um, and I would say whatever. It's like, you know, you say to a young lieutenant in the Army, like, look, make a decision. Or I was told this too. Make any decision because any decision is better than no decision. And I feel like in, in terms of Syria, it's like we're making no decision, hoping like this whole thing is going to blow over. Like the Homer Simpson, where Homer Simpson goes back to college and he's like, I didn't study for the exam, so I'm just going to hide under the pile of coats and hope that this whole thing <laughs> magically blows over. That's a bad strategy. That's, yeah. a real, that's the worst strategy you can have. Like, let's make a decision about what we want the future to look like and move in that direction. Well said, man. All right. Well, hope you guys enjoyed this. Like it, share it out. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SopRep Radio. And uh, I think that's it. Thanks for joining us for this uh, first live stream in a very long time. We enjoyed doing it. Enjoyed answering your questions. And uh, hopefully we'll do more of these. We, I love doing the spotlight interview thing, but it's cool to switch it up as well. Yeah, absolutely. Variety is key, right? Otherwise, we all get bored here. Oh, yeah. Cool, man. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.